0: Welcome to episode 23 of Talking with Tech Leaders uh, with Bob Keeler, storytelling mastermind, international businessman and entrepreneur, uh, formerly chief executive of Wood Group and chairman of Scottish Enterprise. Uh, We talk about the MBO in regards to creating PSN and also the merger and acquisitions uh, into Wood Group um, and obviously as a mastermind of storytelling uh, very interesting and um, part two is around how to do storytelling uh, also about culture principles and values so a really good um, podcast and uh, a fantastic guest so thanks again to Bob for taking the time um, with us It's uh, Michael Fair here uh, on Talking With Tech Leaders And today I'm joined with uh, Bob Keeler Storytelling mastermind, an international businessman and entrepreneur uh, Formerly chief executive of Wood Group And obviously previously as well chairman of Scottish Enterprise How are you doing Bob? I'm very good Michael, very good, thank you for having me on Well thanks very much for taking the time, it is greatly appreciated um, Obviously we gonna start off at the very beginning mm-hmm. And you graduated from Heriot-Watt University uh, with a Master's in Electronic Engineering uh, and you got some experience with Hewlett Packard, I believe,
1: yeah? Yeah, I did, yeah. I worked at the, the, the Queen's Ferry Telecoms Division, QTD as the engineers like to call themselves with these acronyms, which was great. Um, so yeah, I spent a little bit there in, in the design lab uh, designing circuits for digital communication.
0: That's, uh, I'm sure, really interesting first role. And then you went into kind uh, the oil and gas, onshore, offshore, and I'm breaking them different positions there as
1: well. I did. I joined BP and then went through the, the kind of graduate development scheme. So that involved moving around different places, including being offshore. So I was offshore in the Southern North Sea on the kind of relatively close small gas platforms. And then I was offshore in the Northern North Sea where you had to fly to Shetland and then to take a helicopter out. Wow. to the, the furthest north platform at the time, which was the Magnus Field, mm-hmm. which was right in the north of the North Sea, mm-hmm. yeah. i really uh, interested in them getting helicopters out to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, and you were there for, what is that, 10 years? No, I was only there for about four years before I moved on. Uh, ah, right. I moved on to a small consultancy firm, mm-hmm. a company called TSCW, um, where it was... It was a real kind of uh, eye-opener for me because I'm saying, so who does the, who does the marketing here? You do. Uh, who does the sales? Oh, that's you. Uh, who does all the production of all the materials that we need? Uh, you do that as well. And then who, do, who delivers it all? Well, that'll be your job as well. Mm-hmm. So it was one of these jobs where you, you had to get involved in everything, which was a great way of learning new skills. Oh, completely. I know the feeling sometimes. <laughs> I bet you uh, do, yeah. 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 And obviously
0: you know, going through um, your career from the start there and kind of, you know, to where you've kind of landed as well um, and can be CEO of companies like Wood Group. Did you kind of, was that the aspirations when you're younger, or is it kind of just kind of flowed through as you've kind of went through your career and happened? And there's a lot of hard
1: work involved. I, I kind of think that you know you can look back and say it was all part of some grand master plan, but that's that's that would be an absolute lie if I said that mm-hmm. because that's just not true at all. Mm-hmm. Um, when when I was younger, my aspiration was to paint uh, album covers for heavy metal bands. That's amazing. And So I kind of went into engineering really as a, almost as a fallback, thinking that actually it's pretty tough to make a living in the, in the world of graphic art, so mm-hmm. I better have a trade to fall back on. So I thought, um, I'll, I'll go and do engineering. Now, at the time, I, I went and did, I signed up for computer engineering, mm-hmm. but then I didn't realise at the time that all engineering in the first year at universities is about the same anyway, so you mm-hmm. roughly the same course, whatever your discipline Um so I ended up uh, uh, veering toward uh, electrical and electronic uh, engineering, yep. uh, which I, I enjoyed. And um, ultimately, I thought, yeah, I could make a career in that. But I, I just found I wasn't, you know, I wasn't as passionate about it as other people were.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's what kind of guided me towards let's do something that's got a bit more variance in it, a bit more interest in it. So joining a company like BP at the time allowed me to think, well. There's jobs here where you take the helicopter to work. Yep. There's jobs here where you have to go and work in different parts of the world and you have to work with mm-hmm. all sorts of different people doing different roles. So you have to get mm-hmm. on with people and all the other things that come with it. So the variety there was very interesting. Mm-hmm. But coming back to the original question, was was there a kind of a master plan? No, there wasn't. I mean, it was a case of there was a series of choices. Mm -hmm. and the choices to be made were whether to uh, move to new companies, move to new roles, take on new opportunities. And at each choice, uh, I I made a decision without knowing ultimately where that would lead to and what opportunities that would open up. So, Mm -hmm. And I I think it's it's almost like a a metaphor for life, isn't it? You you really don't know what's ahead. You Mm -hmm. can just make the best decision based on what's in front of you at the time.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting, I think, seeing you uh, now, this present Bob, you know, killer, and it'd be really interesting <laughs> to see you um, at that age because people obviously just see the kind of fight, not the finished version, but the version you are now, and they think, yeah. "Oh, they're really good at presenting; they're really good at kind of communicating; they're very confident." Look at all the stuff they know—it's amazing. How do they know all this? This stuff, but they naturally <laughs> don't see all the kind of the work that goes in the background as you've kind of developed through your career.
1: Yeah, I'm, I've always used the kind of the, the the almost glib phrase that it took me at least twenty-five years to become an overnight success. <laughs> I, and, yeah. and a lot of a lot of the things that I've learned on the way have come from uh, from making mistakes and learning from my own kind of failings, learning from other people's failings. Mm-hmm. So I, and and that continues to this day. I mean, I still make mistakes and still learn and still yep. try to move on and still hopefully get a degree of humility about the stuff that I have no clue about and uh, and can't really opine on. And
0: I, I was saying there, you I'm know, obviously when I asked you to come on talking with tech leaders. You're also again quite rightly saying, well, Michael, you know, I'm not not your what you're saying, a tech leader. No. And obviously, my convincing part of that was, well, I think it's so important just now. You know, these tech companies, businesses that are about to go into more difficult times. I think in the next year, and hopefully, tech's not too impacted. But you know, values, leadership, culture is so important as all these kind of companies have popped up. And I think it's a really good uh, some
1: value that we can kind of give to the listeners as well. Okay, as long as you don't ask me about anything techy, then we'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What's your tech stack? Yeah, totally. And <laughs> completely. And obviously, one of the big moments where you've kind of went through your career, um, or you're going through your career, and I think you've mentioned on previous podcasts that you've, you know, went in and you've moved, I think it was 15 roles across 10 different organizations. So moving jobs every 18 months, I'd be spending three years in a company.
1: Yeah.
0: Was that like doing stuff in different
1: areas? Of the organisations that you're kind of working in, definitely. I mean, each time I, I talked about these uh, these forks in the road, these junctions,
2: mm-hmm. and at
1: each time I thought I thought to myself, where will I learn more? And the easy option is to stay with where you are yeah. and and hopefully get promoted into a new role and maybe learn a bit more. But but that's a, a potentially slow process, and also I've seen people become pretty disenfranchised by doing that. You know, they stay in one company and. They get bitter and twisted because they've not achieved whatever they were dreaming of. And by then, they're too bound in that organization. They find it difficult to move out or their skill sets are no longer relevant. So moving across different organizations and just saying, look, there's something there that I don't know much about. Mm-hmm. But if I throw myself into this, I can learn a bit about it. Um The thing that used to frustrate my wife in this is it often accompanied a a, a pay cut at the time. Uh-huh. And one one occasion I took a pay cut for deciding to move from onsh- offshore back to onshore of the equivalent of about £15,000 a year, which quite frankly at the time we couldn't afford. Mm-hmm. But I felt in the long term I couldn't afford not to because I would still be offshore to this day uh, and probably would become quite disenfranchised and maybe a bit disillusioned by the whole thing. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I, I kind of want to keep things opening up in front of me rather than closing down
0: yeah and it's definitely a big decision you know making that and obviously making it as you say with your wife i'm sure supporting you um and you know it's turned out to be the right thing do you often advise people i know you do a lot of things you know in terms of entrepreneurial and helping different companies and you know giving your time um to social enterprises as well and different charities do you see people sometimes that have kind of got that fear of change they're stuck and they just need that kind of nudge that once they get over it, you know, it's actually a good thing to go and do.
1: Yeah, I do a lot, especially at the early stage when people have not yet, they're not ready to kind of commit. And um, my advice often to them is until you commit, you won't know what you're committing to. And it's not a a once-in-a-lifetime irreversible decision. It's something if it doesn't work out, you can lick your wounds and you can step back and you can get back onto the career ladder again and you can learn from that mistake and go forward. So it, whatever choice you're making, if you think about it in terms of being, this is the next intermediate step on the way, it's not a forever, I'm going to be in that job forevermore type thing. That allows you to then take on roles that you think, well, it's not the ideal role for me, but I'll learn a lot while I'm doing it and it might lead to other interesting things.
0: No, completely. Um, I'm getting into, obviously, a very pivotal moment, and I know it's going to jump into an exciting part of your career, or something that I would say would be very exciting, is looking after an
1: organisation in 2005. So in 2004, October 2004, um, I was working for a part of an organisation called KBR, Kellogg Brown and Root, a large engineering company who did large projects like building LNG terminals and building, you know, and designing and building large refineries and chemical plants and things like that. And I was looking after the UK part of the service business, which looked after engineering, construction, operation and maintenance. And a lot of it was to do with the offshore oil and gas industry, but some of it was in in other industries as well. Uh, And that part of the organization, the UK business was, it was it was a tough business because it was very competitive. But I got asked to take on the role as uh, looking after the global business. The global business had business in probably about 20 countries at the time. And I'm looking at the business, I'm thinking, yeah, um, the business is going okay. But what I picked up very quickly was the, the owners of the business um, thought it was performing really, really poorly. Uh, and largely it was because they were judging it on gross margin rather than return on capital. So as a gross margin, it wasn't making anything like the amount of money of the big project business. And you can understand that because they were high risk, high capital. The bit of the business I was running was a service business, completely different. It was low risk, low capital, modest return, which meant that the return on the capital, for from my perspective, was still quite healthy. So we had this situation where we had the owners of the business that didn't think it was doing very well. And we had me sitting there thinking, this business is doing okay. Um and, and then I thought, well, okay, maybe we should buy the business and decided that we were going to go across to see the CFO of the Halliburton Corporation, which was the parent company at the time in Houston. So myself and my colleague, Duncan Skinner, decided we got on a plane and we thought, hang on a minute, there's, there's, there's a big risk associated with this. We could get fired here. So what we're going to do if we get fired is firstly, let's get return tickets so that we can get home. And the flight home's about ten hours, so that ten hours is enough time to construct a story for our respective wives about how this is a great opportunity to take on a new job opportunity somewhere else. So that was our kind of uh, risk management uh, plan at the time. We went across there, we spoke to to Chris. Now, walking in there and saying, you know, we want to buy part of this business because it's underperforming. There's there's obviously lots of questions. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, you've never done it before, you've got no money. Why should we sell it to you? All these kind of things. So we had to construct a story for them. And the story the story was quite simple, is that we knew that the Halliburton Corporation wanted to split away from KBR and, and list them as two separate organisations. We also knew and understood that that was a, a pretty expensive thing to do and it would require them to have tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to do it. We also knew that because of the, the state of play in the organisation at that time, there wasn't a lot of free cash going about and borrowing would be trough. So what what we pitched to Chris was, if you sell the production services part of the business to us, that won't detract from the potential value of KBR when you float it off as a separate division mm-hmm. and it will generate the free cash you need. Mm-hmm. And he went, I get it. Ah, that makes sense. So he said, go and make us an offer. So we went back and found, let had to go and raise the capital then and had to come back and I had to, make them an offer and ultimately that led to us being able to buy that part of the business and uh, you know on the 1st of May 2006 we created a a new company called PSN Mm -hmm. having done the the buyout of the part of the business that we were running.
0: That's amazing and again people like looking into that and making a judgment in my head that you know I couldn't see that happening but one week you weren't doing that or thinking about it and then the next week you were. Yeah You know, and it's just like understanding what was happening with the business, understanding the opportunity was there and then having a discussion with your, your colleague about it. What
1: what was one of the the pivotal experiences me is because I was one of several divisions within KBR and we were in the the Mm -hmm. sexily named division called subsidiary operations, which meant, you know, we were almost, almost, you know, also RANs. Um, I was Mm -hmm. asked to present the strategy of the business at a two day session in Houston and. I was told by the 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 team that were running it that that here's your deck of slides that you've got to use. They're all text slides. You just fill in the numbers and come along and present it. And I'm thinking to myself, I would rather die than present 30 text slides to anybody at any point in my life. So I'm not going to I'm not going to do it. But I'm not going to say that I'm not going to do it because I don't want to get I don't want to make a a, an issue of it. So when I went to Houston and the the, the the bigger guys around the table started presenting their slides and that it was just it was extremely difficult to listen to. Especially for somebody like me who was also somebody from jet lag at the time and others that had flown in from the Far East who were also. So it was a real struggle to keep focus and pay attention. And the material was dreadfully dry. It was just just mm-hmm. not interesting in, in much ways at all. Mm-hmm. So at the last minute, I said, look, I'm, I'm not going to use those slides. I've, I've got my own slides. And I just had three pictures. And the, the main picture I had was I put up a picture of a because, because remember at that time, although the business was doing pretty well, the perception from Houston was it wasn't delivering. So I put up a picture of mm-hmm. a, a, effectively a rowing boat full of water at the side of a, a lake. Yeah. And I said, this is my business today. I said, and you're asking me my strategy about where I'm, what course I'm going to go on and what horizon I'm going to head for and what islands I'm going to visit on the way. And I'm going to say, Nah, my strategy is simple. I'm going to get the boat out of the water, fix the holes, uh, empty all the water out, and then I'm going to come back and talk to you about strategy. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And at the end of the two days, Lou Pooker, who was the boss of the organization, stood up and said, these are the worst two days of my professional life. <laughs> good, good man, manager, Lou. And uh, yeah. he, said, he said, honestly, he says, these are the worst presentations I think I've ever heard in my life. He says, there's only one I'm going to remember, and that's the one with the boat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely really interesting. I mean, when you're talking about doing a presentation there and thinking about using imagery, is that something that you've always started doing throughout your career? Did you always try and kind of add colour, and, life and try and kind of bring these things.
1: I'd, I'd, I'd love to say yes, Michael, because that makes make me sound as though I somehow knew about this way before everybody else. But no, I, I did what everybody else did. Yeah. I, I fell in with the corporate standard mm-hmm. in the days before PowerPoint. And if you remember, PowerPoint first appeared on Windows in 1990. Mm-hmm. So I started off my career before PowerPoint where we had acetates, where you used to have a roll of acetate on an mm-hmm. overhead projector and you basically wrote using a pen onto a roll of acetate It was projected through a mirror up onto a wall. You know, fantastic technical stuff. (laughs) Then when when PowerPoint, which used to be a Mac-only product initially, when it Mm -hmm. got ported onto the early stages of Windows, we thought we'd died and gone to heaven because now we could put all this Mm -hmm. text up, we could put bullet points up, and when it comes in, you mm-hmm. can have the sound of trumpets and hand clapping. And mm-hmm. Once all that nonsense settled down and people started using PowerPoint as a kind of conventional way of presenting, I fell in with that. And nobody ever told me that my presentations weren't any good. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I thought what I was doing was perfectly fine. And to be honest, it wasn't really until I joined Halliburton in 2002. And my colleague Brian that was working beside he said, oh, look, there's a... There's a, a, a training program you should go on. It's called um, Articulus. It's to do with presentation skills. It's called corporate storytelling, but it, it's a bit different. And I was a little bit dismissive at the time. and mm-hmm. I said, Brian, I says, I've done presentation skills before about, you know, not jangling your keys in the pocket and always standing face to front and, you know, using nice big fonts on your text slides and all that. He said, no, no, he says, this is, this is a little bit different. And he was, he's was right. I went along to see this, and the, the, a chap called Dan Reel, who ran the company, um, he was all about using metaphors and analogues and in imagery to try and get ideas mm-hmm. across. And, and that really was the starting point of my journey about I need to learn more about this. I need to study this. Yeah. I need to become better able to decide when it's right to use a prop and when it's not. What's the psychology mm-hmm. behind this? Um, what works, what doesn't work, where's the evidence to support it. So that was the start of my journey. And at that point there, I thought, gee, if I look back the way, most of the presentations I had done up until that point had been at best average, and, and, and I never knew. I never knew.
0: Yeah, I don't think you do. Um, you know, I think you say that it started 2002. Um, there's a guy in BIT Shoot Alexander. I'm sure you won't mind me saying. But when he tells a story... And people love it because, he, you know, he tells a story and he builds it up yeah, and, yeah. you know, constructs it in your head and you can sit and you're just staring at him. But in your brain, you're going through all the different stages.
1: Oh, you, you're you know? there with him. Mm-hmm. You're there with him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I always thought that maybe you, you can't learn that. No, you can. You can. You can. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is my, my, my thing is now some storytellers bring their personality and their charisma to the table. But actually, when you look in the world of competitive storytelling, which you didn't know was a thing probably, Michael. No. <laughs> but it's a, it's a thing that you get, particularly in, in the US, where instead of going along to a comedy night, you go along to a storytelling night and you vote on the stories that you hear. Mm-hmm. And, and what a lot of people in this world do is they try and take themselves out of the story so that people can concentrate purely on the story rather than actually concentrating on the persons being animated. So what their view is, don't wear anything bright-coloured, don't use any props or gimmicks, just tell the story and get people imagining the story in their head. Mm-hmm. And build in all the drama and the suspense and the surprise and, and all the stuff that comes with it to make it into a really engaged story. So there's there's something there about me for me is that the, the techniques that, that I now share with other people are relatively simple. They're built on solid science, they're built on a lot of experience as well, but the underlying science all stacks there but these mm-hmm. skills are teachable and learnable. It doesn't mean to say they're going to be Martin Luther King Jr. by the morning. <laughs> this is turning people into better than average presenters and the average is set mm-hmm. pretty low.
0: Yeah, but definitely I think you've not spent time doing it. I always assumed everybody, you knew you were good at it or you weren't, and uh, until someone also as well wrote down my filler words during a presentation, how many times I used them. That was quite upsetting. <laughs>
1: But, but, but the other simple thing is, you know, when I ask people what's the average number of rehearsals they do for a business presentation, if I round it to the nearest number, that number's always zero.
2: Yeah,
1: I know. Because most people don't do any rehearsals. And I'm saying, well, Nothing. every mm-hmm. comedian rehearses their material before they take it on to a, a tour. The Rolling Stones have been playing the same blooming record for 60 years. They still rehearse before they go out on tour. And, you know, anybody mm-hmm. uh, from the world of acting would never stand up and try and perform a piece without having gone through multiple stages of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So why do the amateurs like us in business think it's OK to try and do it live on stage in front of an audience yeah. the first time ever and think somehow it's going to be great? Yeah,
0: you're so right. There's been a word I've always not looked forward to saying during the presentation. And I've not even you should always say things like yep. difficult things out loud because then you'll actually beat it and not actually just try and murmur through yep. it <laughs> during the presentation, oh, yeah. you know? Um, so, you know, you, you've went, you've got your, you, you've kind of presented, pitched this off um, and you're now about to uh, take on, was it 9,000 employees that you've got integrating with 14,000 to then become CEO of 50,000 yeah. people.
1: Just numbers. Easy, easy days. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So what's, so what's the question, Michael? <laughs>
0: I don't know what the question is because <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it blows my mind to think we're a, we're a team of 30. You know, so you've got you've went to 50,000 employees and CEO of Wood Group. And obviously
1: you became CEO of the company that's actually acquired the 9,000. How does that happen? Well, well, well part, part of it was um, the analogy I would use is it was a bit like being um being a newborn baby wildebeest on this, the the African savanna. If you don't get up and start running, you're going to get eaten by lions. Mm-hmm. So we had to get up pretty quickly and make sure that we had everything in place that we were going to be able to, to, to at least survive, but hopefully to, to thrive. Mm-hmm. And over the period of the next kind of five years, um, we, we focused on being good technically, good commercially, but culturally different and culturally a place where customers like working with us. Uh, staff like being part of the team. Uh, suppliers like dealing with us, and and that began to have an impact on the business. It began to see we we won more and more work, mm-hmm. and we were winning more and more work from our big and much longer in the tooth competitors like Wood Group, AMEC, like other companies, and to the point where um, we began to be very attractive towards some of them as a potential acquisition. Mm-hmm. Now, we'd bought the company on a multiple of about five times the EBITDA in the organization. And now we were hoping to be able to sell the business for something higher than that based on a different culture. So mm-hmm. um, I had a lot of cynical engineers in my business. And I, th- I don't I think you really need the term cynical. It just comes with the, the territory for us engineers, does it not? And uh <laughs> A lot of them would say, all this culture stuff, it all feels a bit touchy feely. It feels a little, a little bit soft management stuff. And I would say, well, actually, here's a list of all the jobs we've won as a result of our culture. Here's a list of all the jobs that we didn't even have to bid because they wanted to give us the job. Mm-hmm. I says, this is blooming good for business. This is, this is, uh, it makes business sense. And then, of course, when we came to sell the business, we were able to sell the business at 10 times multiple. So I could argue. that the the culture in the business doubled the value in the business because it doubled the multiple that we sold it for Mm -hmm. and then having sold it into Wood Group, part of what attracted Wood Group to us was the culture and how we'd managed Mm -hmm. to create that culture so uh, when I sat down with Siri and Wood about this, he said really what we need to do is bring some of that into Wood Group because um, we need to learn from what you guys have done and so how are you going to do that then? He said, "Well, would you come in effectively and come in and take as take over as CEO of the whole organization? Now, at the time, um, I had to say, "Is this mm-hmm. is this a is this just a little bit of a, a promise to get me to sell the business, and it'll never happen, or is it a guarantee?" And mm-hmm. he said, "Oh, well, you know, being being a public company, we if we make a guarantee like that, we would just announce it to the shareholders and saying so. It's not a guarantee." He said, "Well, it, it, it is, but it's not." I said, "Well." It, can't be both. Mm-hmm. So I twisted it around again. I said, okay, well here's the deal. I said uh, so if within 18 months of being in the business together the the position hasn't been offered, then um I get the right to walk away without any penalties. And I said, Oh well. I said, Well if you're if you're serious about it, there's no reason why you shouldn't sign up to that. And they said, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so we'll do that. That's amazing. So I went in there. My first job was to integrate the the, the parts of the, the group that I was uh, familiar with, including the P S N company, and then to step into the role of, mm-hmm. of chief executive. After that,
0: there's so much to unpack in that. But you know, how do how do you deal with an employee? I mean, two different companies of these sizes, yeah, different cultures. You know,
1: arch enemies. Yeah, arch enemies. Yeah. Um, where do you start? With the people. With the people, you know, you've got, you you know, um, building trust with people for me is always about getting to know as many of the people as you can, but more importantly, getting them to get to know you. Mm -hmm. And in a large organization like that, you can't know everybody personally. You can't actually physically meet everybody personally, but you can certainly communicate with them regularly. And as long as you communicate regularly on a way that they feel is uh, authentic and genuine, Mm-hmm. and it's two-way rather than one-way, then over a period of time, that level of trust will build. And it gets to the point, for instance, where if I was going to turn up at an office that I'd never been to before, often people would say to me, ah, you're back. And I would say, no, I'm not back. I've never been here before. they say, oh, it feels like you have.
0: That's so interesting. they
1: say, well, we hear your voice all the time. We see you on video periodically, and we get messages from you every week. And they're full of things about your family and about your love for music and sport and science. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that's quite personal. And we love the way that you tell stories back about other people in the business. So by doing all these things, it created the connection with people across the business, which meant when I was then going out to say, I think we need to change things. their first reaction is to say, well, explain a bit more rather than uh-uh, here's another management initiative. Come. They are going to do something to us.
0: It makes so much sense and, and it's not simple, but when you say it like that, it makes so much sense. you are kind of given that like personal authenticity you're happy to share personal things about your life, you know you're also telling stories to other people in the company, so they're almost already getting that familiarity yep. with you before
1: you yep. met you so um, for, so for instance, the reference okay. to music um almost the, almost at the time when I was getting announced as the new CEO, I was in a, an office in Aberdeen in a place called uh, Justice Mill Lane. Now, Justice Mills mm-hmm. Lane's just in the centre of Aberdeen. When I was a child, and I'd come up on my summer holidays from the borders to Aberdeen, whoa! I'm here in mm-hmm. Aberdeen. We go. It's got a beach, and it oh, it's got shops, and it's got traffic <laughs> lights, and all the things you never see in the yeah. borders, you know. Um, but I was staying mm-hmm. in a hotel or a, a bed and breakfast that was virtually on the site of where the office was. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking back to to that time when I was like six years old in Aberdeen. I'm thinking what music was in the charts at the time and won't get fooled again by the Who classic track. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a great line in that track, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Mm -hmm. So I told the story. That was the that was the title for my communication to the people in the business. Meet the new boss and then explain why I used That's it. So it was nothing to do with meet the boss. It was, I loved the lyric.
2: Yeah.
1: It's a slightly different way of communicating than, than a normal a normal CEO might do. It was just a, a different way of getting people hooked in to say, this feels a bit quirky, it feels a bit different. And if I did that as a one-off, it would have just been disappeared in the midst of time. But by doing it mm-hmm. continuously, by doing it obsessively, by, by keep going... Uh, effectively, by that you know, by the end of it, I've done it for over ten years of communicating new messages all the time. Then it's it's really interesting mm-hmm. how how much people will pay attention to them. If if I look at you know the modern day equivalent for me would be I put out a story on LinkedIn on Sunday night, and it's had seventeen thousand views by this time this week. Previous story that I put out has just gone over fifty thousand, and if I look at the stories I've put out this year already, one point three million views to them. And they're all business-related, so they're not intended for a wider public audience. And they're only on LinkedIn, they're not on Mm -hmm. on some of the more broad frameworks and things like that. So there's an appetite for people to to want to consume business-related stories that are interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. And you can see like LinkedIn as well, somebody's pushing more video and stuff. And what you're doing there with a text post is actually saying, if you tell it like a story you know, this is the kind of outcomes that you can get if you take your yeah. time and actually...
1: Yeah, well, well, part of that, to be honest, is because, because I, I'm kind of connected in with some of the guys in, in LinkedIn themselves, uh, their advice is that mm-hmm. text is still a very effective way because people can consume yeah. it passively, whereas, you know, video, mm-hmm. you've actually got to take time to, to listen and pay attention to. They're part of a mix, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, so you've went through that journey... Um, a massive one of integrating the two companies together, the two cultures together. Um, you know, go on to the next aspects of the kind of part one in the career. You've you've kind of moved on after five years in one week.
1: Yeah, I, pro- I committed to five years. I like to be somebody who who does you know stands by their word. So after five years, I said, look, I've done this. It's time for me to step down and do something else. Mm-hmm. And then into things like. You know, chair of Scottish Enterprise. You know, for three
0: years. I don't even know how these opportunities come about. Obviously, I'm a recruiter. I recruit IT roles out for 15 years, but you know, I don't think there's a job sitting on S1 saying chair well, of Scottish Enterprise. You know, it,
1: it, it is interesting I mean, on that one as well because it's a public appointment. Mm-hmm. You have to go through a process. Mm-hmm. So they, they approached me initially and said, "Would would you be interested in this role?" And I said, "Um, and I was looking for a role that would give me a broader perspective on business, and I thought what that would be a great." vantage point to be able to see into different sectors and to understand a little bit more about an area that I didn't know a lot about, which is the public sector, for instance. So I thought, yeah, I'll learn a lot from this, which is my main criteria. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, but at the time, I was doing a lot of traveling. And they said, oh, you need to get your application form in. And I said, well, that's not going to happen because I'm I'm, tra- I'm on a plane for the next two nights or whatever. So um, and they said, but it'd be really good to get you applying. I said, no, I, I, you know I can't do it, guys, sorry. So they came back to me and said, mm-hmm. look, if we if we text you the questions one at a time, you text back the answers one at a time, we'll fill the forms in for you. Fair good. enough, we've found a way through it. And then they said, look, you know, you'll need to come for an, uh, a panel interview. And this was uh, at the Haymarket in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, wh- what do I need to do for the panel interview? You know, what preparation do I need to do? They said, well, can you present on an issue that's facing Scottish Enterprise? And I said, well, I don't know Scottish Enterprise. So, what, what issue do you want to, to present on? They said, Oh, no, you choose. I went, like, Hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. So, I went along uh, and they said, Are you ready to present? I said, Yeah, I am. I said, But if you don't mind, I'll stand up. So, I sta- I stood up, I had my A3 storyboard in front of me that had my, my, my presentation graphics laid out, of what I was going to talk about. I set my timer up, I delivered my presentation, 10 minutes, I sat down, and of course, the first question was, mm-hmm. So what made you think that that was an issue facing Scottish Enterprise? I said, well, I phoned up the chairman and asked him. Oh.
0: That's amazing.
1: I phoned up the chair. and said, what are the big issues facing the Enterprise? He said, and he gave me a list of three or four. I said, so there's no dispute that for me that it's an issue facing Scottish <laughs> Enterprise. <Yeah. laughs> that, that's how the opportunity arose. And of course, uh, there was a couple of little difficulties in mm-hmm. there because I was conscious of the fact that if you're going to take a public role, That comes with some responsibility. So firstly, I made sure that none of the the, the money that came from the fee that gets paid to the chairman came to me directly. Mm -hmm. So it was all channeled into my business and used to cover overhead costs so that I could then spend time helping others. So not a penny of that came Mm -hmm. to me. But I also realized that if I had any investments in other businesses, potentially at some point somebody could say, ah, the Scottish Enterprise are helping a business that he's got money in. I thought, Yep. So I sold every share in every business that I had in UK businesses, uh, paid the capital gains tax on on that so that I could take the role without being accused of having a conflict of interest. And then the the third thing I did was I I could legitimately claim expenses for train travel and for meals and for hotels, but I thought I don't want a journalist in three years' time digging out and saying, he had a stake on stack on taxpayers' money, or you know, he bought a copy of the you know a newspaper. And I thought,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I'm I'm not going to claim any expenses at all. So I was there for three years and didn't claim a single penny of expenses because I didn't want anyway somebody to accuse me of doing it for the wrong reasons.
0: That sounds like something of succession, you know, that's the is like that's involvement. It's like you've showed all your shares, you know, in the, these I different know. companies. So
1: there's no. I mean, it, it cost me a bunch of money to take on that role, but yeah. I got a huge amount of learning out of it. And I got a huge number of different mm-hmm. connections out of it, and I made lots of new colleagues um, there as well. So you know, it was a it was an eye opener for me to understand just how that part of the machine works.
0: And I should have asked as well. kind of, on exit and Wood Group? Obviously, you know, you've done five years there. They bought they bought a PSN and integrated. You integrated the companies together and involved in all that. But then you've made a decision there. To give back, to help people, and, and that was then the main motivator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's Scottish Enterprise, there was Chair of Entrepreneurial Scotland, and there was obviously several different trade bodies as well. Very busy. Um, what what did you enjoy most? I mean, was it you can't say I suppose, but what would give you? Oh, lots of different experience. What did the, you enjoy they're, more?
1: They're different in their nature, and we were wrong to pick out mm-hmm. uh, one versus the other. I mean. Entrepreneur Scotland over the years had I met some uh, very individual entrepreneurs at different stages on their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I met a lot of really inspirational people, but within Scottish Enterprise, I met some great business leaders as well. I, I, you know, a great team within the Scottish Enterprise themselves, and learned a lot about the mechanics of how much work was being done to support businesses. And then when I compared it with other parts of the UK and beyond. A lot of the things that we provide and take for granted in Scotland doesn't necessarily exist in other, other developed economies. So, yeah, I, I took different things from each of these opportunities. I currently chair the local Chamber of Commerce here up in Aberdeen, for instance. Mm-hmm. I'm tied in with most entrepreneurial development schemes around the country one way or another, which means I get to meet mm-hmm. businesses early on their journey, some of which will change the world and some of which will fail. And the good thing is, at this stage, nobody knows which ones these are.
0: Mm-hmm. There's never a moment where you write a wee bit on a note and you put it in your pocket for later to guess oh, the, the,
1: <laughs> who's going to go and who's not. The, 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 there's some of the business, I think, if, if this takes off, this could be a, a real game changer. And, and conversely, there's other businesses I'm thinking to myself, is this really a market? Is there something for this? And they go and surprise me. And next thing you know, they're making mm-hmm. lots of sales. And I'm thinking, well, good on you. So I never, I never pass an opinion on people as to whether or not I think their business is going to be successful. I pass an opinion on whether or not I think they're organized for it, whether or not they're able to communicate it, whether or not they're taking an approach that's likely to, to get them what they need to do. But ultimately, mm-hmm. it's customers that will decide whether or not the business is going to be successful.
0: Well, completely. And it leads us well into kind of part two on of the podcast on kind of storytelling mm-hmm. and also on culture. Yeah. And some of the people that you meet, I can and I can assume, you know, they're at a certain level of storytelling um and then maybe once you've spent time with them do you see drastic
1: improvements Is everyone different do you kind of try and spend time coaching them in different ways yeah i, I mean to try and make it a, a teachable skill and that we've tried to boil it down into a kind of set of repeatable things that we can do that we know are generic enough that gives people the, the kind of the building blocks and then having given the building block we can then coach them to make sure that their particular set of stories their set of um, you know, case studies, etc., will fit within that uh, and get the most out of it. So, yeah, we find people that are a lot of people when they come to us, they're stuck in that paradigm of we always do what we've always done. Mm-hmm. We know it doesn't work that well, but we're not sure of what to change because when you say to people, "Be more creative," what does that mean? You know, appear appear on a unicycle. You know, what, what are you going to do for your next mm-hmm. presentation to a group of you know, investors or whatever. Um, so we break that down and say, look, w- w- why is it important at different points to get different messages across, particularly if you're trying to persuade somebody of something? What's the psychology of persuasion? And therefore, why would it be appropriate to do something rather than inappropriate to do something else? So we're not talking about being crazy or mm-hmm. silly or you know, presenting financial presentations through the medium of modern dance, mm-hmm. you know, w- what we're doing here is to say we want presentations to be absolutely relevant to the audience, but interesting and engaging and informative all at the same time.
0: It, it, it's, it's such a core skill set, I think, the storytelling that you're saying, and you don't learn, you don't go through, we're quite involved with Career Ready and doing a lot of the um, kind of mentoring students and things that are coming through high school, um, and you don't learn about uh, in high school, like much about presenting. You no. I might mean, do a couple. But, you know, the presenting and negotiating and the storytelling stuff is just so key, you know, as you kind of go into your career and go into your know, working world.
1: I, I think it differentiates people. I, I am biased, however. I mean, I am biased because it's uh, it's certainly, I think, for for me, communication has been a differentiator.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's certainly, I'm not the most highly qualified engineer in the world. I'm probably not the best manager in the world. I'm probably not even the best CEO, Um, in the building never mind in the world so i'm kind of i'm not claiming those things i'm just saying actually if i can get the message across a little bit more clearly and a little bit more persuasively than someone else it doesn't have to be massively so it just needs to be enough for me to say yeah it's worth giving this a go or it's worth supporting that idea yeah
0: completely and is there any kind of like do's and don'ts not to put you on the spot of like storytelling or I mean, obviously it takes a long time to kind of develop that skill and, and kind of hone in on it.
1: Yeah. We, I mean, we've got methods that we would, we would show people. We've got templates that we would share with people. And then we would get them to practice applying these templates and methods. Mm-hmm. And then we would give them feedback and we would coach them and watch them on videos or we'd watch them doing it in person so that we give people the kind of basic skills to get them up to kind of level one where they can say, right, I'm now going to go out and pitch this. It'll be really clunky. It won't flow particularly well, but once I now realize that um, I'm no longer bound by having a deck of slides, to, I may have some slides to show during the presentation, but I'm no longer beholden to the slides, and therefore I can present as if I'm communicating with people rather than trying to put on a slideshow presentation. Yeah. And that is so liberating for people. Mm-hmm. The downside of that is it takes more work.
2: Yeah.
1: Because if I'm going to do a 45-minute presentation with no slides at all, I need to have you paying attention for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So that means I've got to be interesting for 45 minutes. I can't just slap on a 10-minute video and say, there you go, watch this. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So that means more work on content. It means more work on how to keep people engaged, um, more work on how to keep it interesting. And that's where things like bringing props to bear or, or models or examples, or getting the audience involved in different ways—all these things help the presentation to be more engaging and more memorable.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that's kind of the—that could be the outcome from you know getting funding, getting an angel investor on board, getting that seed money. Um, to not getting it, we actually spend a bit more time on the pitch of the presentation or how they're so going to tell their story. We,
1: so we spend time helping some of the people we meet in our journey who, at the next stage of their journey, they're saying, "Okay, we want to go and." Uh, Pitch for business or pitch for funding. Let let me give you an example. We were working with uh, a guy called Andrew Mm Parfury from a company called Care Sourcer. And Andrew came to us and and he was going to spend a day with us as part of a programme that was being partly sponsored by Entrepreneurial Scotland. And Andrew told us about his business, which I won't go into in any great depth, but he basically was frustrated at the time because he was trying to get, I think it was Edinburgh City Council to try out his product and after multiple meetings it, it, they weren't really taking it on board they just kept wanting mm-hmm. to ask more and more questions which was frustrating him further um he came on board talked to us we showed him a few methods and i got a note back from him um, a few days later saying, we've cracked it we went in for our 13th meeting with them and we now start a six month pilot with them in two weeks time
0: that's amazing what a good story
1: and I said, What do you do differently? He says, We told them stories. We didn't talk about our software, we talked about the difference it made for people. We talked about the difference it made for the council. And we drew up the problem on a on a piece of uh, um wallpaper and they started drawing the bits of the problem that they couldn't fix, and we put a circle around it and said, Yeah, but that's what we do. So we're both <laughs> we're both part of the same problem here and they said, yeah. Ah, that was the aha moment for them. And they went forward, and Andrew's subsequently gone on to raise millions of pounds using the same approach. That's
0: an amazing story, and I bet it was the best circle they ever drew. Uh,
1: uh, oh, <laughs> this is actually uh, what Absolutely, we did. yeah. You're not going to believe it, guys. That's us. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, not completely. Um, and then I suppose talking about the storytelling aspect that you coach and help people with, with the values and companies, you know, kind of saying like these are our values, and somebody's doing it as an exercise, or sometimes kind of trying to portray Although someone will, I'm sure, believe in it at some stage and at some point, you've kind of talked about in the past about how you have to kind of tend to that garden or you kind of have to tend to it and, and nurture it. No, it's
1: it, it's it's um, an area of interest for me. You you may have seen the, the TEDx talk that I did on doing core values, uh, which is a little 12 minute segment there. But by the way, I had to finish that as an engineer. I mean, plus or minus five seconds. <laughs> so, so the timer I had running on the stage in front of me that changed uh-huh. colour to take me through the different sections on the storyboard that I had in front of me gave me a tolerance of plus or minus five seconds. I think I nailed it within three seconds. So, I, as an engineer, I'm thinking, yeah, we we, we got that o- over the line. But
0: and it's amazing for you to say that as well, so people know the amount of preparation you put into that as you were going through that presentation. Yeah,
1: you know? yeah, because I, I actually um, I I missed a bit out towards the end of the presentation. Because I knew I couldn't fit it in and that allowed me mm-hmm. to slow my last anecdote down mm-hmm. so the last anecdote I did in that talk about talking to an old friend of mine from offshore Mick McNally from Barnsley mm-hmm. I was able to slow that down because I could see in the corner of my eye the timer ticking down so that I would finish right on the nail mm-hmm. so yeah there's there's, 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 there's cool. a lot of prep goes into what appears to be an off the cuff chat mm-hmm. delivered that way so when it comes to values again I'm biased about it because I think that the the, the behaviors of an organization, the decisions you make are driven by the culture. Mm-hmm. The culture is built on the values, whether they're explicit or whether they're implicit. And therefore, that's why I think the values are so important, because it ultimately determines the, the, the path and the journey that the organization is going to make.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And therefore, if you pay a lip service to them, you're kind of using them for marketing. You say, well, these are not the real values of the business. These are the values that we put external." internally the values will be the things that drive people's decisions and it might be greed it might be one-upmanship it might be political it might not be about the success of the business or the fairness towards everybody or the respect for each other so for me there's there's a great strength in being able to take the time to define these values because ultimately they will be the things that will build the culture and it's the culture that will make you different from your competitors Mm-hmm. And if that difference a good d- different, then that might help you to land more business with your customers and it might help you to attract more talent without being over the top.
0: Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important now. Well, I know it is uh, culture after COVID. Uh, i do not say that word for a long time. Hey. Um, but companies, you know, working remotely and not being in the office all the time and not kind of having pizza and beers or whatever they're calling it. Yeah. But, you know, it can have such a big impact um, on what the culture is. Is there anything that you guys? Everyone asked this. Anything you guys have kind of thought about in terms of how you keep that
1: culture kind of together yeah. with more remote working? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, one of the dangers you've got with remote working is when people interact, they tend to interact on a transactional basis. You know, we've got an issue to talk about, so jump on a Zoom call and we'll talk about this transactional issue. And the minute it's finished, I'll go back to my living room. You go back to wherever you're calling from, so you don't get the ad hoc conversations taking place mm-hmm. so I think there's something there about good good leaders if you've got a team that are remote working you need to almost have the the ad hoc sessions planned in as well
2: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: so so that you say, and this is something I used to do in wood was that I had a cadre of about 180 sort of middle level managers that twice a year I'd have a little drop-in session with them
2: mm-hmm.
1: it was tw- 20 minutes uh, if it was could be in person, it was in person. If not, it was by video. If it wasn't by video, it was by telephone. And I said, in these sessions, this is not me catching up on you. This is not me testing you. This is me getting to know you and you getting to know me. So I'm going to ask you about things like, how's the family? I'm not really going to talk to you about work unless you want to talk about work. And I'm, I'm quite explicit about this. I'm not doing this because I'm prior. I'm doing this because I want to build enough of a connection that you will trust me so that if you've ever got information that you think I need to hear about, good or bad, you will know that you can trust me to handle it appropriately. Mm-hmm. And you will also trust me enough that when I come to you and ask you or tell you something, you know that I'm actually genuine about it. Mm-hmm. So it was about building that trust pathway between the two of us and, and doing it a couple of times a year to, to drop in so that it was a one-to-one thing. And, and I did what you would imagine. I took little notes. Mm-hmm whilst we were talking so the next time I come and spoke to them I would say how did your daughter's big ballet presentation go and they'll go you remember that I'm saying well no I wrote it down and I've just refreshed Mm -hmm. my memory on it but I'm still interested you know did it go as well as you thought and just these little things about showing that you're taking an interest in their lives beyond work without again without prying and without you know asking them for Mm -hmm. information that they they wouldn't readily want to share it creates a different type of conversation
0: yeah, I think you're totally right. and I think uh, building rapport and relationships in terms of sales and customers, like remembering these kind of things like people's birthdays or their kids' ages and names and things like that, and if you can kind of
1: come back on them yeah. each call, you're going to be the one to remember. Yeah, I, there's a little, a little trick on that as well, is that if you can get people to wear security badges with their names on it, ho-ho, uh-huh. <laughs> you can walk up to somebody and they tap them on the back and say, Donald, they're going, oh, you remembered my name. And you think, well, actually, I just read your badge. <laughs> No,
0: totally. Um, There's a lot of companies, obviously, um, that have started up off the back of the pandemic, um, all that build up um, in terms of tech as well. Um, They may, hopefully, are looking at you know their values, um, their brand, how they kind of want to perceive themselves internally and externally. But there'll be some as well that are five years down a path. They don't have any values. Is it the same kind of process? then start and then kind of five years down the line or is that a different kind of I, different road to take
1: to, to some extent it's easier five, five years down the line because you 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 kind of you've established who you are because mm-hmm. there, are, there are really two questions you need to answer when you're thinking about your values who are you and, and what do you want to be
2: mm-hmm.
1: these are the spice girls questions <laughs> who, who, who do you think you are and tell me what do you want to be what do you really really want yep. to be get get these get these questions answered now when you're a startup, you've not even defined who you are yet because you might not be trading.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but who you are is not necessarily who you think you are. It's who your customers think you are, who your staff think you are, who your suppliers think you are. Mm-hmm. So you can go out and listen to them all, and and you might be pleasantly surprised by what they say, or you might be shocked and disgusted by what they say. But at least that's the de- the definition mm-hmm. of the reality: is you know what other people feel about you uh, and what they what they think about you instantaneously when they hear your name, mm-hmm. and if the answer is nothing, then that's a problem as well, if, they, if they've forgotten who, who you are at all. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the choice there about agreeing, well, what kind of business do we want to be? Let's define it, let's set it out. Now the danger yep. at that time is that you write down 55 really positive adjectives, and the problem is you can't deal with 55 ideas simultaneously. Most of us can't deal with mm-hmm. five ideas simultaneously, so whilst it may sound nice and it may read lovely on bits of paper, at the end of the day, it's, it's empty sales stuff to some extent because you're not able to condense that and say, well, what does that mean in terms of a decision to work with, say, a particular customer or to move into a particular product line or to, to, you know, service a particular geography, whatever it happens to be? Because if it's all high level and fluffy and we're going to be nice and we're going to be better and we're going to be greener and we're going to be on oh, all these lovely words and you think, but it's not defining you as anything. You're just trying to be all things to all people at all times. So these are not really values. They're just vague aspirations.
0: Yeah. And, and I suppose then to ask, how important is it that all the leaders in an organisation kind of live and breathe the values
1: and kind of really buy into them? I, I, I mean, it's a kind of loaded question to some extent. I mean, I, 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 know. <laughs> I, I, I think it's vital. And, and I think, you know, having done work with companies recently is that mm-hmm. if I can't get the individuals around the table to actually articulate why they are absolutely supportive of this set of values, then I'm thinking, well, we've still got work to do here because uh, if you're not willing to say it in front of this group, there's no chance, Mm -hmm. no chance that you'll be willing to stand up in front of a room with 50 people in it and say, thump the table and say, this is why this value is so important and here's an example to back it up and here's 10 stories that go behind it to, to show that we're telling the truth. Uh, you won't do all that because you're still kind of not quite committed intellectually, never mind emotionally. And if I can't get you committed intellectually and emotionally, um, you'll pay lip service, but you won't necessarily yeah. make the decisions that are consistent with the values each and every time. Mm-hmm.
0: Not completely. I mean, you've said that with the P- PSN, you know, your kind of multiplier um, was much bigger based off of, you believe, the values, This case studies there, you know,
1: of what you created. But but having having the... The examples to, to illustrate to people all the time to say look here's an example of this value being applied in our business here's an mm-hmm. example of when it wasn't applied and what went wrong and here's an example of when that same value was applied in somebody else's business and the impact mm-hmm. had there's no shortage of examples out there but unless you're the person telling these examples people are not getting the fact that you care about this mm-hmm. so as a, a manager in the business You've got to be the people going out there sharing the stories about the values in action so that they're more than just some sort of um, arbitrary principle that we align with. You say, no, no, this, this makes a difference to our business.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like those values then obviously driving behaviours of the staff day in, day out kind of thing. And you sometimes hear of companies adding it to review processes. They're going kind to of have the values in the end sheet and like, how did you demonstrate this, this and this? Do you think
1: that's a good thing? I, I, I worry a little bit about it. Um, and, and I worry a little bit about it because I've seen people in the financial sector having had their uh, arses scalped as a result of, <laughs> of of bad behavior and sometimes paying massive financial penalties yeah they come out as kind of the, they've seen the light and now it's all values and culture and we've got spreadsheets mm-hmm. and graphs and we've got processes and we've got chick tick lists and And I'm going, actually, you know what, after doing it for 10 years, I still didn't think we were mature enough to go to that stage, and they're doing it after 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. So I was always a little bit sceptical that it was being driven by the need to be seen to be doing it, rather than actually deeply believing it and being driven by it. Mm -hmm. And and when you saw, for instance, you know, when, when in 2013, Barclays came out and basically, you know, brought in a new CEO and the CEO's first move was to write to the organisation, the whole organisation and say, if you don't sign up to our culture and values, this is not the right place for you and you should leave. And I thought, wow, that's, that's ballsy. I like it. I love it.
0: That definitely is.
1: But when that same CEO got fired four years later because the financial promise of the organisation wasn't where it needed to be, I thought, well, it kind of shows where the true values of the organisation are. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um- Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, There's one thing uh, I seen on your your LinkedIn, Bob, which was your first kind of paragraph, which was some of my bosses were idiots, some were bullies, others were really great people. Do you kind of have not an appreciation for them, but the ones that were idiots and bullies and the ones that kind of didn't, you know, condone what you thought was a good culture and good values has kind of led you to
1: kind of look into that in great detail throughout your career? Yeah, I think it, it's been one of the kind of the, the main motivators for me is is that it doesn't have to be like that. You know, a, you know, you can make a choice if you're in a position of influence and leader, you don't need to behave the same way as, as people behave towards you when they basically maybe disrespected you or bullied you or or just didn't listen to you at all or didn't speak to you or locked themselves in an office. You think, I know that's how they operated, but it doesn't mean to say it's right. And for me it's right is actually to to try and get the best out of people and their best out of a team is to engage with them, to listen to them, to communicate with them, to make make clear what you want from them, to hold them accountable, to drive a great business, and all of that done by building a great culture and a great technical team on top of that and a great business delivery model that makes sure you get enough money out of the process to, to you know pay your pay your investors, pay your staff and fund your growth. Totally.
0: That's amazing. Thanks so much for your time, Bob. That's been great. Really enjoyed right. it. Thank you so much. Well, that was episode 23 of Talking with Tech Leaders with Bob Keeler. Uh, next up uh, we have Simon Sear. Uh, and in episode 25, um, we have Theo Presley as well. Uh, so I hope everyone has a, a very happy new year and I'll see you all in 2023.